wanted to, um, I've been thinking about the Beatitudes. Um, we're almost in the Christian uh, liturgical season of Lent. So this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which Caroline said she's really into. Because um, she is really sinful and needs to make a special penance to remember that she's from Ashes and will Ashes she shall return. That's why you like it so much. Um, if you're interested in going, we're not doing anything for Ash Wednesday this year, not because we don't think it's a cool tradition, um, um, or be, just because we're Protestant, more Protestants are doing it, more because we, um, we uh, being from Ashes and returning to Ashes, we don't have our shit together enough to, <laughs> to have done it. Um, but if you're interested, I, I'm um, planning on going to um, a church I like to go to sometimes when I, we don't have morning church, which is... Um, church where we had a fundraiser, like a fancy schmancy dinner last, what was that, spring, summer, um, St. Paul's UCC in Lincoln Park. So if anyone's interested in checking it out, kind of, it, it's a taste of like what higher church is, like, like big on ritual and liturgy and choir, and um, I hear they have a good Ash Wednesday service. So if you're interested, um, maybe you can meet up there. Um, We're, on, this, we're uh, on the sort of threshold of Lent, which is about um, sort of feeling bad intentionally, uh, remembering, as uh, Wednesday says, that we're, uh, we're not as uh, fancy as we think. Um, Lent is a time of deprivation. In a lot of churches, they, you know, a lot, a lot of churches have someone who brings flowers every week. No flowers during Lent. We cover things up. Um, but before we got, get into it, I thought this could be a good thing to think about a little bit, um, because I think the way people intend to interpret the Beatitudes is pretty wrong. The way that we, if we just look at it, is pretty wrong. Um, and it starts with this weird word, blessed, which is totally um, annoying. And part of the annoying thing about religion is that it's, it's come to have these words that are religious words. Like, blessed, like... like um, what, is that, what does it mean to be blessed? When I read it, I mean, it makes me think, blessed are the poor, it means like, like blessed, okay, so they're like, um, especially favored by God, which could mean maybe they have a spot in heaven, or they're just like, nobly poor, or like, in their suffering, there's a dignity in that suffering, some kind of weird religious, like, patina on like, the core of misery. <laughs> um, but that's because blessed doesn't mean blessed. <laughs> Blessed, it comes from the Greek word makarios, which basically means happy. It's a word that could be used like, how you doing? I'm freaking makarios today. Like, I just won the lottery. It's makarios. Like, I'm good. Um, uh, and I think a better translation, though, is not quite happy, because happy comes from the word like happenstance. I happen to be happy. It's related to randomness and luck and fortune. And Makarios, I think, here doesn't mean that. In fact, it's trying to divorce our sense of happiness from circumstance. I think a better translation would be something like bliss. So I wasn't trying to be corny and cute, but a better translation would be blissed or blissed out. Um, which sounds like, like a stoner manifesto. <laughs> Um, and I, it kind of is. Yeah. Uh, so what I mean is that 
the idea that Christianity is about just sacrifice and waiting for the hereafter is totally wrong. It does talk about things beyond what we can know and see, including death. It talks about things before, but also talks about what we can achieve or experience in this life. And Jesus here is telling, he's kind of got this manifesto, manifesto of bliss. How can we experience bliss in our lives? How can we get more of it? How can we get more of it whether things are going well or badly? The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, I, I love this guy, he's um, a Catholic, well, everyone was Catholic back then, but Catholics still like him. Um, he said the point of all of this, the point of everything we do, is the end of being face-to-face -face with God and experiencing what he called beatitude, which is bliss. For him, bliss is kind of the best, most we can say about what God is, because we don't know what God is. Anyone who tells you no day what God is talking out of their ass. Um, we don't, he says we don't fully see God until after we're out of whatever this is. But we can have intimations of it by knowing what motivates us in our day-to-day -day life. He was smart. He knew what neuroscientists know today, what they tell us, which is that at the root of all of our motivations, everything we do, is we want a little shot of dopamine or serotonin. And that sounds depressing, right? Are we just robots that want like a little bliss molecule? In fact, has anyone heard of, uh, there's this new molecule people are talking about, I mean the neurotransmitters. Um, it's called anandanine. You ever heard of this? I may have mentioned it. Which ananda in Sanskrit means bliss. And back to the stoner thing, they found that some people who like, has anyone here, maybe you tried weed once in high school, and you're like, yeah, this isn't for me, I don't know, you know. Some people who don't get addicted, who are less prone to addiction, or who don't really get the appeal of drugs, have a higher base level of anandamine in their brain at all times. Those of us who are not so fortunate um, uh, have to smoke weed every day just to function, I'm just um, but, but, uh, but that, that even if we don't have that higher level, it's something that's in us already. Something that's available, circulating. It's actually in the category of chemicals uh, called uh, something cannabinoids, like epicannabinoids, endocannabinoids, like inner cannabinoids. Your your body's own inner dope stash. I'm not. I'm not. You guys, this is real. This is real. <laughs> what do you see? You would think when you smoke weed, like it cut, like this magical, like happy happy stuff comes in from outside. No, it's activating happy stuff that's already in you. It's just like letting it, letting it free. Jesus here is telling us that we can do that. We don't need to smoke weed. I'm not saying you shouldn't smoke weed if that helps, but you don't need to smoke weed to get the endocannabinoids, to get the bliss. But the way we tend to pursue it is the wrong way. So we're, we're hardwired in our brains. We're hardwired to pursue bliss, to, to get happy, to, you know, even if we have these roundabout ways and if they don't, usually they don't work, right? The reason they don't work is because we uh, can't accept that we're never, that we're always going to have that feeling of wanting to be more happy. You know, so we're like, we get this feeling, oh, I, I need something more of this, more from my partner, more from the world, more money, whatever, uh, I need a more secure life, job, uh, and, and 
and we're not comfortable with that feeling. We think we need to stop that feeling, that happiness is going to come when that feeling stops. And we also think that when we do, whenever we do get this happiness, that it's going to be permanent. It's going to last. It's not going to kind of ebb and flow. Um, was it this morning? I woke up recently just kind of inexplicably happy. And also I was like, I like you when you, when you wake up happy. Because <laughs> I don't always wake up happy. And sometimes we just wake up on the wrong side of it. You know, that's like the bed. Something about the bed did it. It was the wrong side. Um, the bed's fault. Um, but that's part of our experience, is something we have good days and bad days. Even if, like, things are going well, sometimes we feel like crap. Eric, who's not here today, said the most thoughtful thing, uh, and, and kind of a typical, like, thoughtful introvert thing to say. Uh, he's like, I'm sick of people asking, well, he didn't say I'm sick of it, but he's like, when people ask you, like, how are you doing? He's like, it really should... He's like, I really want to respond um, in this kind of like two-part way. Like, are you asking about the circumstances of my life or my uh, inner attitude toward them? You can imagine a grid, like, things are going well, <clears throat> feeling good about it. Things are going well, inexplicably feel kind of bleh. Things are going crappily, uh, and I feel crappy about it. Things are going crappily, but like, you know, it's going to get better. Or like, and yeah. Um, so there's like this kind of matrix of possibilities. Um, and where was I going with that? Anyways, like, we do it wrong. We think, we think either we need to make external circumstances perfect, or we need to stop this not quite satisfied thing in here. Um, and these beatitudes are radical because they affirm how we are. They affirm that we want to be happy. They affirm happiness, bliss as a good thing. They also acknowledge that the world, it's not this kind of like, it's all good. It's like, no, they acknowledge that there's injustice in the world. They acknowledge that there is poor people and rich people, and that's not fair. But they say, they point to a way of facing, I think, and I'm just going to talk about the first one. Tim's going to talk about the second one, poor in spirit, facing the fact that we are always, in a sense, poor in spirit. Poor, uh, Matt, do you know the word in Greek? Remember it? For this kind of poverty? It's like ptuk. Yeah. Ptukas? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it. Um, basically, yeah, it's like you're like the ass of the world. Like you're just like, poor, like you are, it means, it means literally bent over, so you're like, tukas is in the air. Like you're, you're like, crip, you're, you're bent, you're doubled over, you're folded. Metaphorically, you're destitute, it's like you're a beggar. Um, that's what Jesus is saying we all are. And if you think otherwise, you're deluding yourself. We're all, at the end of the day, unable to make ourselves happy fully, permanently. And denying that is what leads to us continuously being unhappy. It's when we acknowledge that we're these bent over, incapable things, and yet we're still blessed. Somehow, blessed are, like made happy in the past, we, we started out, we started out happy. Like, 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 we have in us these, however you want to understand it, we have in us good things, gifts, blessings.
blessings. And somehow, where we're headed is a fullness, a bliss that is unceasing. And here we are in the middle, experiencing moments, unable to grip them tightly. But if we acknowledge that um, and open ourselves, acknowledge we're bent over, incapable, um, somehow we can touch both of those. We can touch this original bliss and this, this bliss that's coming, that we can experience now. We know it's coming, but we're experiencing that coming now. Like, it's not just off in the future. Knowing and trusting that it's there changes how we are now. That's all I'm going to say about that one. Um, Tim's going to talk about mourning. But before we get into the ashes and ashes, I want to say that this, what we're all here for, is to do what Jesus is doing for people here, which is to remind one another of this stuff. To remind one another of, like, yeah, it's okay that you feel bent over or folded. Um, you're good. Like, I'm here, and I'm telling you, you're good. I can't tell you how it's going to be okay. But don't do that thing where it's like, I'm sure things will look up tomorrow. Like, that's not what he's saying. That's the worst thing you can say to someone, right? Um, but that, that we are... Uh, little glimpses of the fact that there are still good things to come. I'm going to mumble every single minute this <laughs> Alright, so yeah, I was given the task of the morning. Suits me well. Glad to do it. For you. Um, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? That's Matthew 5, 4. There's another translation I want to give of that, um, that I couldn't find anywhere else except for this text by this theologian from the third century named Gregory of Nyssa. It says, Blessed are the sorrowful, for they will be comforted. So he uses sorrowful instead of mourning. And when we think about the term mourning, it's natural for us to immediately take our minds to, uh, to death, right? And to think about mourning for people we've lost. Um, it's one of the most universal things I think about. Uh, our species about being human, to ritualize mourning as a process of life. Um, I think it's one of the most important things that the institution of religion has tried to provide for people um, as an extension of what is like very innately a desire inside of us. Uh, and that mourning, that kind of mourning is super important in, in my work. And, uh, I never really talk about my grandmother too much uh, in sermons because uh, when I was taking a preaching class in school, five, six years ago, whatever, uh, there's a video of me from that preaching class with this giant permed afro. Uh, and the video is like 10 minutes of me just like crying because I'm, I was preaching this sermon on my, on my grandmother. And so it's just huge afro, just crying for 10 minutes. <laughs> I, only, I have not even been able to get through it once, so uh, I, I plan to never watch it again. But... Uh, my grandma was a major part of my life, and even though she's passed, it's been about 16 years, every year uh, when I go home for Christmas, my family packs into the car and drives to her graveside and does the same thing every time, and pulls out this potty thing and puts in these flowers that we buy at the same store we buy every year, and we uh, cut the grass that's going around the little headstone, and then we like hold, like, hold hands or huddle together. And, um, sing this hymn that we used to all sing together uh, as a family, and we do that every year, right? This is the continual mourning process uh, of having lost this really important person that 
even to this day, is, a, is something that I go through, that's something as a family we go through together. This last week, Caroline Wooten, she put together a memorial service for Carl, um, who was a member of this community for a while, who passed away this past summer. If you remember, if you were there, Neil and I found out about Carl's death actually just um, really a few minutes before a dinner church service we had that week. We got a, I was outside and just thinking about what I was going to talk about, and I get an email, and this email was from a friend of ours who told us that Carl had passed, and it was really difficult that day to talk about it and to deal with um, those emotions surrounding it, but following, following that day we found out, I found myself really not wanting to think about it too much, um, to not deal with these emotions I felt. I don't really know why, most likely I, I didn't want to deal with feelings like guilt that I had. Um, but during this service that Caroline put together this last week, I was had a chance to, you know, we, we told stories about Carl, we did meetings, we sang. Uh, all those emotions that I had in August came back to me and was able to mourn them in, I think, a way that was also really special and I'm really grateful for that. So thank you, Caroline, for putting that together. This kind of mourning, the loss of people we knew, uh, I think most of us are, are pretty good at, or if not good at, we at least believe it to be important. We want to give it time and attention. Um, what I think seems more difficult for us, and I think is possibly deeper at what Jesus is talking about here, is mourning in the abstract, or to mourn for that which is not immediate for us. What I mean by this is that, um, this is going to sound super Debbie Downer, and I apologize, but life is inherently, I think, full of, of sorrowful things all the time. Which is not to say that life isn't also miraculous and brilliantly full of love and grace and beauty, but that these two sides are always present in, in the world. And what we see at any given moment it really depends on what, which eye we're looking out of. Uh, I want to quote Gregory of Nyssa here one more time on the sermon he wrote on this very beautiful 1700 years ago, he wrote, It is impossible, quite impossible, for one who has studied matters carefully to live without tears. Or in another translation I found, uh, it says, It is impossible for one to live without tears who, has considered, who considers things exactly as they are. I take this to be part of the reason why this beatitude even exists, right? Because the second part of it, the comfort aspect, isn't easy to see as a good in and of itself. What I mean by that is that uh, we might as well just hope for nothing to mourn for, so that comfort is sort of irrelevant. That seems in some ways to be nicer, a better path. But in fact, if comfort is, I think, indispensable as a good, it also stands that there's always something for us to mourn, that uh, if we choose to see it, we can recognize sorrow and mourning in the world all around us. Jesus is both prescribing something, this comfort, but he's also diagnosing a condition, which is the mourning that we have inside of us. Theologically, uh, I think that the idea of why there's sorrow constantly around us, the anguish of life, it comes from the reality of our limitations of our finite existence. And death is, of course, the most recognizable manifestation of this, but so is the reality of evil, of pain that we inflict on ourselves and others in the world, um, that we are so prone to see all the shitty things happening and to divert our gaze, to look away, to ignore, to justify, to reason. Um, those things are also a manifestation of this limitation of this finitude. And these shortcomings are in the same family, I think, as death. The undercurrent of sorrow is always in the world, and it's always there. 
whether we choose to mourn or not. So I think it's something like, blessed are those who mourn, who are willing to look, who are willing to acknowledge, who are willing to feel the sorrow of life that is going on all around us. There's a dimension of the Beatitudes that I think we can't ignore, which is its historical context, and, um, which is also its concern for justice in the situation of persecuted people, the ones who are writing these texts at the time. Uh, as much as the Gospel writers are trying to offer a picture of Christ's life, they're also trying to write for the communities that are going to read these texts. Right? They are concerned with speaking something positive, something meaningful for those particular people. And these situations for those people back in those days were uh, situations of oppression, of persecution, of uh, being martyred and killed. It's not just in the realm of ideas, right? This is a very danger to bodies in a really visceral way. To make a, a choice to look and to mourn, I think, is also to make a choice to care, to participate in um, the real suffering that goes on all around us. And I think this is one of the most difficult things we can do. After college, I worked at um, this nonprofit call center where people would call. They would ask for stuff like, um, I need help paying rent for this month, or where's the nearest homeless shelter, or the nearest place to get a meal, or I have no money, but my kid has mental health problems, is there anywhere I can take him? Um, and often these calls would be like these really sad stories, sad story after sad story. I think we would, I think on average like 80 calls a day, so it's like 80 sad stories I would hear, um, trying to help these people, trying to find resources for them. And in my first couple weeks I started working there, I would go home, just like really depressed all the time, just saddened by hearing all these these really terrible stories of people's lives that were really fucked up. And after a while, uh, I found myself becoming a little bit callous to this, to the whole thing. You, perhaps necessarily so, um, but nonetheless, in a way, I think is is tragic. And, and having talked to people who work in industries like this, right, social workers, therapists, doctors, um, I know this sort of building this wall is a pretty standard thing. Again, sometimes uh, a necessary thing. But there's something like this callousness that I think is is present for all of us, no matter what we do, uh, bombarded by the knowledge of all the tragic things going on around us in this world. And I don't watch the local news, but one day my roommate and I were, were sitting there just like being lazy and we came on and we were too lazy to change the channel. And so we're just watching the local news for the first time, I think probably like in like 10 years from me. And after like the third death story in a row, I turned to my room and I was like, dude, we can't watch this anymore. We gotta change the channel. And that's the sort of thing that is always present when it comes to mourning. Right? This is the difficulty of being mourners, uh, of knowing sorrow, to keep looking, right? to shave away at the callus that wants to, keep, wants to grow. I wanna make a very serious distinction um, between this morning I'm talking about and something like depression because uh, I don't want those two things to be conflated. As someone who has dealt with depression in my life, who has seen up close and other people um, that I've loved, it's destructive nature, I would never advocate or never try to even hint that we should uh, sort of induce a depression for ourselves for the sake of anything. Um, I was reminded the other night talking to a friend about this that depression is sort of a state where this is one definition we gave, uh, where, where you're cut off from possibility, where the future is closed off to you, uh, where your present despair becomes the only thing that you can imagine. 
And I think that in the blessedness of those who mourn, there is this other side, right, that I have not talked about yet, the promise of comfort, which I think is its distinction from depression. The reason why we ought to risk the, the, the very difficult and dangerous act of giving, uh, of caring about stuff enough where we can mourn it. Comfort opens possibility for us. It makes a claim about the future. Uh, and this promise of comfort is both, like kind of like Neil was saying, uh, within our existence and outside of it, within the actions we take in this world, right? um, and then the idea of the Christ this Christian idea of God's final word or a hope for redemption in the future. I'll close here by talking a little bit about what I think this comfort actually looks like. Uh, a lot of Greek today. I apologize for that if you're, if you're not into it. If you are into it, this is a good day for you. The Greek word for comfort, parakletizantai. Uh, Apologies for my accent. Uh, shares the same roots as the word uh, parakletas, right? Um, the paraklay part. Which means, this latter word parakletas is the word that is used uh, to mean the Bible uh, to appear on another's behalf, or a mediator, or an advocate. Advocate, this last term, is often the term used for the Holy Spirit. Um, in other words, I think. There's a question of what it means to be comforted and who does the comforting. And in this sort of grammatical move, we have uh, some hint of an answer, which is I think that we are comforted when one comes to stand in the place of she who mourns, who is in uh, solidarity, who makes an appeal on behalf of another. This advocate who does the comforting, who coming in the form of God's promise, the Holy Spirit, um, as I said, which I believe also to mean the Spirit of God that is present in all of us who do the work of God, the work of advocacy, of love, of justice. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by those who work to comfort. I think that is sort of the key of understanding what Jesus is saying. We are called to stand both as mourners and as comforters to both open ourselves to the world, to stand in solidarity again, to experience sorrowfulness and pain and injustice in this life, and also to fulfill the promise of comfort, to stand in the place of those who suffer, to advocate for them. When we look away, when we avert our gaze and see uh, the world through sort of light of indifference or ignorance, I think we fail to receive comfort because we're both incapable of offering it and incapable of receiving it. So we are not blessed uh, for the sake of mourning in and of itself. Mourning itself is not good, I think. We are blessed in that mourning because we receive, we're able to receive something that is available only for those who are looking. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Uh, my hope is that we work on both sides of that promise believing that in doing that, they always will stick together.